Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm looking out of my window. It is a sunny day. Pretty gorgeous, really. can hear the birds in the trees. And I'm really excited to introduce an awesome interview with Meg John Barker, who is a therapist, an author, and was an academic psychologist for over 20 years. And the reason I wanted to speak to them is that they've written this awesome book called Hell Yeah! Self-Care. And it seemed to get into this idea of self-care in a way that I found really interesting because I've got some of my own personal issues and vibes around the idea of self-care. There's a bit of me which still thinks it sounds self-indulgent, but it's really essential. And what I love about their work is they centre all this stuff not only on the individual, not only about how, oh, you can become the best version of yourself or whatever that might be. It's not something they would say, but also about how we need to think of this in a really collective way. This conversation gets into all of that. We dive into the problems in self-help, dive into a really amazing discussion around self-care and an exploration of trauma, which is interesting me more and more and I think is really powerful uh, and really essential for understanding not only yourself but the world that we're living in and if you like this conversation and you think that you would like to talk about it well we've got the lifefulness community we're more than just a podcast people and that is where we gather together online to go and talk about these things to go and support each other to go and help each other enjoy the best parts of life and also to cope with the trickiness so i'm gonna get out the way thanks so much for listening and here is meg john bahaka Uh, welcome. Oh, I found myself doing that in the welcome to the welcome podcast. To. When we do, welcome, Meg John. This is your life. Uh, but we're going to keep that in. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, Meg John Barker, it's lovely to have you here. How's it going? It's good to be here. It's going very well. Thank you. <laughs> you are a therapist who's just written an amazing book called Hell Yeah Self Care. And that's what we're going to get into. But before we get there, it would be awesome to for you to answer our first question, which we ask all our guests, which is what was the spiritual, religious or philosophical background to your childhood? Oh, well, it's such a mix for me. Um, a really important part of my childhood is the fact that I come from a mixed class background. So I had quite an, one set of grandparents were really quite upper class and then one were very working class they also had very different again spiritual so actually my upper class grandparents with an Anglican background high Anglican ended up running a crystal healing center eventually getting very into alternative uh, medicines whereas on the other side my working class grandparents my my I don't know if my granddad was religious but my gran was Methodist and was also very involved with the labor movement and with the miners strike in the in the north and all of that seemed quite um, connected for me um, and and yeah to be in the, in the mixture of that and then my parents sort of moving away from all of it and becoming atheist you know and really not having uh, a religious belief although there was some I went to a CFE first school and a Catholic upper school and I also grew up in Bradford where there's a large Muslim community so all of those faiths were around me growing up 
um, but also atheism. So yeah, I, I'm I'm all about non-binariness, and I feel like there's a very non-binary spiritual and class and culture background going on for me as well. What were the guidelines that your parents used for? different words that they grew up with how did you end up finding because i imagine they had different words to describe things around the house and i'm asking as someone who oh yeah i'm asking as someone who would never say lounge but has married a lounge sayer right and it is and and like in my i remember at my school my headmaster was like i had all the toilets out and replaced with lavatories and it's just <laughs> And it's this ridiculous thing, but actually, but that's and 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 so much for me because my parents were from the south, but we grew up in the north in Yorkshire, which has very specific names for things. And again, with this class, you know, multiple So yeah, sometimes I was using a loo, a toilet, a bog, <laughs> a laugh. You know, it's like depended on where I was and who I was staying with at the time, and you know, watching very different TV shows in these different, you know, with my friends or around my grands or visiting the, the upper class grandparents. Like, it's just this moving between these very different worlds. And then again, very different faiths and very different cultures as well. Oh, well, that is fascinating. And uh, then our second question we ask, what's one thing that you think the secular world could learn from religions? <laughs> yeah, well, I've been a Buddhist for over 20 years, I guess. So that's the main religion that influences me. Oh, to pick one thing from the, I think, <laughs> It's, it's sort of the welcoming everything, I suppose, the, the sense in Buddhism, but also it's in Islam as well and, and various religions, I suppose, the sort of sense of welcoming everything that arises, you know, as, as something to learn from and not distinguishing, you know, positive, negative emotions and trying to get the positive and get rid of the negative, not distinguishing positive, negative parts of ourselves, but also parts of, you know, not bad people and good people, all of that kind of severing feels to me like something we do so easily and it seems to me that you know it's in that kind of roomy poem the guest house um it's also in kind of the buddhist teachings that i follow that sense that you know every what is it to be everything is welcome what is it to befriend all internal and external states you know that that's the question that a really key question for me that is wonderful and if there's uh, any podcast listeners who want to get more into that we had uh, someone come and talk about acceptance and commitment therapy uh, oh yeah it's a good one uh, shamash uh, aladina podcast uh and and it is it's one of those things which is very easy to say um, mm. <laughs> right <laughs> very hard to uh to practice but i that's something in the lifefulness journey and also so i started a organization called sunday assembly which is a network of non-religious uh, congregations and it was a celebration of life and people would always be like oh god life is why would you celebrate life life is you know and it's like well no it's not saying that there aren't bad things within life in the same way that, you know, in, in Christian, in Christianity, in Buddhism and Islam, they're like, oh no, you, you still love Allah. You still love God. You can still love being, but within that there is, uh, you know, there, there's also pain and it is, it's not a, it's not saying that there is, you're trying to like avoid suffering, but actually something can, it can be accepted. And if you can celebrate the context within it, which it happens, then it can also be powerful. Give us a short potted history of getting to from uh, class confusion and uh, existential <laughs> multiplicities uh, to <laughs> where you are now. Yeah, well, I think I was always massively motivated by trying to figure out how I ticked and the and relationships and you know sort of, I guess the relationships with ourselves with others and with the world um so I, I did psychology 
um, which, you know, was the obvious thing to do. But as somebody said to me recently, it's all rats and stats. (laughs) 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 If anyone's thinking of doing a psychology degree, it's not going to tell you how to relate to yourself, the world and the people. (laughs) It's mostly going to tell you about rats and stats. (laughs) It's a bit like when people go and do philosophy. It's like, I really wanted to answer the big questions in life to go and work out, like, how should I live? It's like, oh, no, 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 no. We stopped answering that a long time ago. Let's get into technical uh papers yeah so you went and studied psychology yeah so and then and then it just became an ongoing journey i was i was really driven by having gone to the self-help section of the bookshop as a teenager and finding nothing of use really there (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i'm not going to name names but the uh the self-help books of the 80s but they haven't improved that much you know they they all have a very sort of how to fix yourself as an individual you know, kind of approach self-help. I guess that's again kind of bound into them. So, so it's really an ongoing kind of journey to want to learn something better and then bring it back. You know, to the self-help books. Um, so I did psychology. I also studied a lot of sociology. Um, particularly, my areas were gender, sexuality, relationships, and mental health. Um, so again, I sort of started to look to sociology, to philosophy, but also to activism and got involved with various activist groups and then, you know, also Buddhism and then various schools of feminism. And then I trained as a therapist as well. And I trained in a, a few different sort of schools of therapy. So just trying to bring all of this together, um, figure out, you know, what worked for me and then try to convey that to, to others. Um, and in the last couple of years, I've been able to let go of the academic uh, world and also being a therapist and just focus on writing um so now I'm a full-time writer and that is my whole job is to you know communicate bring all this stuff together and communicate it to people and broadly I do it in two main series of books so one is a graphic guide collection so it's comic books on all these topics um which I do with my an illustrator Jules Scheel um and they go out with icon books and then these self-help books that I do with um, Alexi and Taffy, which hell yeah, self-care is the most recent one of. But again, those are a set of self-help style books on the same topics of gender, sexuality, relationships and mental health, really. And you've already gone and touched so many different things that I'd love to go and get into because like, what would you say are the sort of problems that you see in the sort of health, self-help sort of sector at the moment well for me it's it's always been about um the individualizing which is a problem with the therapy industry as well and i wouldn't say again all therapists do it or all self-help authors but a lot individualize the problem so it's like there's a problem in you that it's somehow in something wrong in you whether that's the way you think or whether that's um you know personality or something like this and it's yeah you know we're aiming to fix you and I've always seen it as this, there's a lot of the problems that we experience as humans, which are to do with out there, to do with the cultural messages, to do with um, social systems and structures, which are, as we know, are incredibly unjust and impact people in different ways. And I suppose what I've been trying to do, I called it anti-self-help at first. My first book, Rewriting the Rules, was about relationships and saying it's almost impossible to have the... Well, I think it is impossible to have the kind of relationship that we're sold by the media and self-help books as 
this is what a relationship is, you know, sort of the same kind of love all the way through our lives. And we're best friends and we're also hot lovers and we co-parent and we cohabit. And, you know, they're the person that gives us everything forever. You know, um, it's not it's not going to happen. Like there's no evidence that that's even possible. And now we're living longer, even harder. And we sell people this awful myth. And then when they struggle with it, it's like, you know, well, here's, you know, really expensive therapy, couples therapy or, you know, here's this health help book that you, you know, again, sells you this message that this is possible if you'll just do x y and z and i feel like the problem here is the cultural message you know is this idea that one person should meet all our needs you know and that um uh you know that that yeah this sort of message about um what love relationships should be like and are like and and similarly with mental health you know so many if we look at the stats on mental health the people with the worst mental health are the most marginalized and oppressed you know so clearly we need to be you know, shifting our unjust society rather than individualizing these problems as something, you know, and it's not, it's not all that, you know, certainly our individual upbringing has a big impact on our mental health, but we need the whole picture and we're selling people. And it's, it's a really dangerous idea that, you know, there's something wrong with you as an individual that needs fixing rather than seeing the whole scope of what's going on. Whilst there are like so many of these issues are which are afflicting the people who are most marginalized, you know, obviously caused by the systems. But then also you those the same sort of cultural systems get set up, which uh, obviously impact uh, in a different way around people who've got really wealthy as well. Like, let's not try to pretend that like the that people who like people get have a lot of money are instantly happy. Like I'm sure in your therapy and in your world, and you'll see that that is not the case. And often some, it's sometimes the most trapped people because it's so hard to um, liberate yourself from some of that when when it's also what's giving you, you know, some stability and and sense of safety. Yeah. When I was at, so I went to a school where we literally wore gowns. It was nuts, and but I could <laughs> uh, never get my head around the. That you've you've basically got to go to this school, which costs an absolute fortune, and then uh, so that you know there's this idea, so then your children can do everything in life, and they can be whoever they want to be, and well, in order for your children to then be able to do everything in life, in fact, there's four jobs you can do, and three of them are in finance. It's like yes. it's like you're setting up, and so so then they can, so then their kids yeah. can also work in finance and actually do a job they don't really like, and and you're just like, what on earth is this system? I uh, it's hideous. Yes. My yeah. latest way to slightly uh, annoy my friends who are sort of going down, sending their kids down the public school path is sort of not not saying that schools, private schools shouldn't have uh, shouldn't have tax free status, which they shouldn't, but that they should be taxed uh, in the same way that cigarettes are taxed because they're a public health threat. Nice. And well, the- we know this. Yeah, we know, especially boarding schools, the impact that has on people and down the generation. You know, we think about intergenerational trauma. You know, it happens at that end of the spectrum as well as the, the end of people being, um, you know, experiencing um, you know, really, really awful things. And I suppose this is a, part, a big part of the messages of my books as well. Like when we think about things like gender and sexuality, you know, there is an emphasis, of course, rightly so on the way LGBT people are marginalised and the, the terrible impact that that has. Um, particularly at the moment for trans people under such um, high amount of transphobia in our culture. But I always look at as well, what about people who are really 
who are in the privileged so-called category with gender and sexuality, well, also really trapped. You know, we know about the toll that toxic masculinity takes on men and how they can't reach out for support. They can't talk about their emotions and the suicide rate is really high in that group. And we also know, um, you know, from looking at sort of sex surveys, like heterosexual couples often very miserable around their sex lives and feel stuck in this kind of pattern of trying to have a certain kind of sex, which, you know, I think one survey found that over 50% thought they were some way to sex sexually dysfunctional because they they can't you know do penis and vagina sex twice a week or whatever the expectation is twice a week oh my gosh the uh uh, yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. Uh, oh happy days i think uh if that happened in our household then so my so my mission yeah is so much to you know, obviously to look at the those of us who are marginalised in terms of gender, sex, relationships, mental health, and try and change those systems, but also to say, look, this isn't serving anyone. Like these cultural messages are not serving the people who fit in them. In fact, they're a huge detriment often to those people as well as to the people who are oppressed by them. So, you know, it's actually the system needs to change for everybody's benefit, not just for the marginalised. And it, and it would be better for everyone if people were no longer so scared of what was going to happen if they weren't rich that they go went and have had to pursue that at all costs doing things that they didn't like to do for the rest of their whole of their lives because they're terrified of the society that they'd fall into well how yeah. about you like <laughs> fix a society that yeah would be, it'll save exactly. you like having to do a job you really hate no it's exactly people are feeling very stuck in it so at the one hand you've got you know the fact there's a kind of lie embedded in it all about the only way that some people get to be that rich is if they exploit you know either either directly or very much indirectly all kinds of other people who aren't earning that kind of money in order to provide their goods and services and property and everything you know but but also it's not even making them feel good you know it's just yeah it's no good for anybody is it and it's it's so it's just such a tragic time and i think the pandemic has just shown it just even more how unjust the systems are and the toll they're taking on the planet as well of course um and so systemic change is 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 what's absolutely necessary and i and again that's why it bothers me when people whoever's selling the message of kind of just individual change um you know that that's not it's it's another way of kind of almost avoiding like if we all focus on self-improvement then we don't have to look at these you know incredibly unjust systems that really need to change or, or deal with all the feelings that we have when when we are finally called to attend to those things and i I've, this is a weird thing when doing a podcast you're never sure whether you've said something before but there was this uh cartoon which really sort of caught my uh Uh, caught my eye and it is a psychiatrist who is approaching a koala bear and the koala bear is in a forest with all of the trees cut down and then the psychiatrist says oh well uh why are you experiencing mental health issues (laughs) uh and yeah it's just we're not we don't have the things in place in order for us to go and be when you said for our relationships it's also like actually the messages we're sent about seeing our friends about all these other stuff in the world that we're living in it's just not set up for that at the moment uh, but i see that i've got distracted from the first interesting thing you said and without <laughs> even getting into the book and so at the very least i would like us to cover the the self-care aspect uh, of your book of uh which is like wh- why is it important for us to look after ourselves and 
then and then also the trauma informed part and there's loads of mm. other things about criticism culture and all the rest of it and if we get to it we get to it but <laughs> this is all great so far so yeah yeah, yeah. talk about that self-care uh part because mm. i know that there'll be or maybe i said i know there'll be some people listening to the podcast it's actually me who's still got this feeling that self-care is slightly narcissistic and i and i believe in it it's the word it's this weird thing where the word says something about it which uh, which goes and puts me off but all the practices underneath it i really support so uh go and uh, yeah, i'd love to you to talk about the self-care like where you're so passionate about self-care oh absolutely yeah and i think it yeah it's a real issue isn't it that we're it's a sort of again this kind of uh, double bind in our in our culture that there is this sense of indi everything's individualized and we have to work on self-improvement but also there's a kind of uh, sort of suspicion of anything self-indulgent you know and, and we are supposed to be productive and you know it's not anything to look after ourselves so we're kind of trying to walk a tightrope between those two somehow um, and yeah we actually we didn't really want to call it uh, uh, self-care hell yeah self-care um, it rhymes because, though Come but on. it sounds so good right <laughs> and people also know the word self-care but what we would have liked to call it is collective care which is an idea coming much more from intersectional feminism and from indigenous scholarship it's like you know really what we should be aiming for and it, it comes it speaks very much to this podcast isn't it that's all about community and congregation that we aren't these atomized units you know we aren't these individuals we're completely interconnected and interdependent so really we can't do self-care without collective care um we need systems and structures to support us to look after ourselves and you know that that that's caring should be a, yeah like mutual aid that's come out of the the pandemic it should should be a mutual act it should be something we're helping each other doing we, we should be shifting our microcultures you know in our groups of friends and families and whatever such that it's supportive of all of us um caring for ourselves and each other you know engaging in relations with ourselves and others consensually all all of this sort of shift um, it's not going to, you, you can't, you know, an individual can't read hell yeah, self-care and just like do some techniques and then suddenly they're self-caring if nobody around them is supporting them to do that. And if their if their work place is encouraging them to, you know, work, you know, nine, 10 hour days and then do some yoga on top of that or some mindfulness as if, you know, that's going to make it better, you know, that's more labor. Um, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's really, again, this idea we need to think collectively and we need to think about systems and structures of care, not just you know, an, an individual having one more bubble bath a day or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the thing which I thought when you were talking is actually, it's almost the, the word spiritual growth is something which to me is the, like all the different practices that you're speaking about, like if they were sort of described as a spiritual pathway, like that's something which like suddenly goes and clicks it's like okay i've got to think about myself but it's it's not just some mamby pamby bubble bath thing it's actually really big stuff it's connected to these wider traditions it's not something that i do on my own i'm gonna probably need some support in it and uh, and it's just a shame that for like and i say this as someone who's an atheist but can now say that like i've got spiritual practices it's a shame that that word for many people instantly goes to conjure up images, which would mean that it wouldn't be applicable in their lives. But absolutely, 
it's so hard to name these things in a way that people, you know, it's like I'm very, I've been very involved in the mindfulness movement and again, very disturbed by some of the ways it's been very individualized. Let's just hear some techniques to improve your attention or, you know, uh, when there's so much scope for it to be, you know, a very, a very spiritual and political act. And part of the reason we use self-care in the book as well is because Audre Lorde, you know, the black feminist talked a lot about self-care as a political act that, if we're in group, if we're in groups that are told that we're not valuable or we're even disposable, and though we care for ourselves within our communities, then that's a political act. We're saying no, we are valuable. You know, no, we 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 aren't disposable. We are just as important as everyone else. And also, we're creating these communities of care when maybe the you know the more powerful groups aren't caring for us. We're saying no, we are going to care for ourselves though. So that it's political and it's spiritual but it's finding that language you know that doesn't that doesn't it doesn't just get turned into yeah self-care as a bubble bath or mindfulness as a you know technique you do once a day to attend to things better you know it's it's much more that it 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 kind of um permeates everything and also that it's you know really at its baseline it's about care and kindness and compassion and those are the things that often get stripped out, you know, that often it becomes just much more about survi- surviving under capitalism, you know, or it becomes about, you know, it getting your attention better in order to produce more work or something, you know. Mm. Yeah. And I, th- I think it also, uh, what you were just saying, it sort of chimes with the fact that uh, in the 60s, when uh, Martin Luther King was, you know, involved in this stuff. Like, actually, self care wouldn't have been told that you have to go and come together in a community, look after yourself, eat your greens, be nice, pray. Again, it made perfect sense. You're not doing it on your own because people had the language of Christianity, or at least he did, to go and describe it. And so it's like stepping into this space, which has been sort of denuded uh, by the secularization then i guess the moving on to the next part is this question of trauma informed this is a real trend with the questions that i ask you but the question asking all of these things i'm also quite got issues around this word which are entirely from me bringing it but i'm sure they won't only be me on the podcast like what does trauma informed mean and how can someone who's like i'm not not really never experienced trauma i wasn't sort of sent in a truck from Siberia to East London to work in a go-go bar or whatever it might be, these traditional ideas of what trauma is. Oh yeah, that was what I'd say. And I'm finding this understanding really helpful. Well, it's, it's two pieces to it really. One is that um, it, it happens at all levels. So we have to, instead of just thinking about, you know, people often think about a traumatic incident, right? So yeah, you know, being in in the military or having you know sexual violence happen to you as a child or something like that and it, it rather than that it's thinking about it at all levels so it happens you know yeah in in our lives both in our childhood and in our everyday lives now and it also happened but it also happens at a community level and at a cultural level um so, so not not just thinking about it as something again at the individual level but thinking about it as all these levels in our lives but also there's two pieces to it so it's about what happens yes a, a seriously extreme incident happening to you like a you know random act of violence or something you know is likely to be traumatizing but it can also be cumulative so cumulative stress has the same effect on our bodies it's really thinking about the effect on our bodies and our nervous systems cumulative stress and a big major event can have that same kind of impact. But what determines if they'll have an impact is this other piece of whether they're heard 
whether anyone holds us and hears us through them. So if we think about developmental trauma, for example, that's when you're a child. So obviously having big incidences as a child, like being hospitalized for ages and taken away from all your friends and family can be trauma, is likely to be traumatizing. But so is just being, you know, frightened and shamed day after day at school, you know, if it's not held and heard. You know, so if you have those experiences at school, but you go home to someone who says, oh, my goodness, you know, and helps you helps you make sense of that and, you know, helps to protect you from it and, you know, really hears what's going on and helps you helps you regulate your own feelings, you know, and learn how to deal with your emotions that come up less likely to be to have that traumatic impact on your body over time than if you don't have that. You know, so so even things that we don't generally class as traumatic events can be really traumatic if they're happening a lot and nobody's hearing them and nobody's holding them. And the same thing is true, say, for cultural trauma. So marginalized groups, it is about the discrimination and the hate crimes and things that happen. But it's also about them happening in a cultural context where there's so much gaslighting. So somebody's experienced a racist or a homophobic incident and everyone around them is saying, no, that's not what it was. No, you know. It can't it can't be that or you know it's not really that hard being black or being gay you know it's that it's that double whammy of the the violence that's happening whether it's sort of cumulative little things or whether it's one big thing but also the silence around it whereas if you're again if you're in a culture that says oh yes you know there is this real injustice and let's try and you know make some big societal changes to address it that's not going to be as traumatizing because you've got that sense of like oh everybody gets that this is happening and they're doing something about it you know so yeah those those two uh, the so so far when you've been speaking about injustice i've brought up about one actually how rich people get stressed too but uh then the other one i was like going, <laughs> but this thing which made me think about it and i think it's because it's often not said in our culture is that there's not for me as a white man, but like, as there are some people who have got really hard lives and who are having, it's difficult and, you know, they've come from a place of privilege and all the rest of it, but they're still within this system where no one's like flourishing and they might be flourishing more than other people, etc. But I can see how that would also be, you know, if you feel that your voice isn't heard or that it's not important, or that's not really a real thing, then, I mean, basically everyone's a bit fucked. Really? I, I would I would say so. And, and I guess, you know, there the can be a thing when you're when the traumas you've been through are things. I mean, this is I think this is in the boarding school syndrome kind of literature, for example, that there's this sense that the problem with boarding school is, is, is both. It's that you go there and you are actually, you know, told the only way to survive here is that you have to present. You have to make make this very false kind of performance of somebody who can survive under these conditions, who's a child, you know, who has you know no no one really looking after them um so there is that but but there's also this sense of you should be really grateful you know very few people get this privilege you should be really really grateful for it so it is again that sense of something's happening that's really not okay for kids and at the same time you're being told you should be really grateful for it so you know i think some of the some of the traumas that we don't generally class as traumas. I think, you know, bullying school is a really, is a really good example. So many of us are bullied at school. And again, it happens at all of these school, schools from, from the inner city comp up to the public school. And it's shocking the degree of, you know, being, you know, death threats and sexual harassment and shaming and frightening behaviours that, that happen from kid, by, to kids by other kids and also sometimes from teachers. But we normalise it so much in our culture 
that again you've got that big silencing and everybody just telling you to pull your socks up and you know this is going to toughen you up for life and all these horrible you know it is child abuse that is happening here you know physical sexual and emotional child abuse and then there's this big cultural silencing of it and you know you don't know you're born you know it was even worse in my day this sort of intergenerational piece so you know yeah I think we do need to look across we definitely need to look at these big unjust systems around race gender sexuality disability class and we need to address those but we also need to just look at the way that it's pervasive in our culture for kind of everyone and that sometimes this language of you know sort of that's not really traumatic or you know you, you shouldn't be complaining about it is, is another another way of silencing which just furthers the trauma and we what we don't need is a bunch of traumatized bodies wandering around knocking up against each other and re-traumatizing each other what we need is this again this really useful trauma literature that's finally kind of getting a bit more ground which helps us learn how to regulate our nervous systems and how to experience our feelings in safe enough ways now given that we we often never learnt it as a child you know I was just imagine if now I went well actually someone's got to think about the bullies uh that's uh no, <laughs> but, no but again oh, no, that wasn't what I was thinking <laughs> but there is that because yeah, they, okay, would, well, look, would, you they, do it. Would, would they be doing it if they weren't yeah there? so what so what we know about trauma is that it tends to when when our systems go into overwhelm you know the survival strategies that animals tend to have under those circumstances and humans as an animal is fight flight freeze or fawn um, and so fight is, you know, one of the survival strategies. And the only reason that somebody is doing bullying, controlling and violent behavior is because their nervous system is in this, this traumatized state. So, again, the answer is trauma informed kind of working with somebody such that they don't need to go into that survival strategy. That, that's what would be good in our in our world. So, again, we do need to think of those who do those kind of behaviors as just as potentially traumatized as those who freeze or those who try and try and people please and placate others, or those who try and disappear, you know, or just stay really, really busy. All of these things are kind of survival strategies to deal with an overwhelmed nervous system. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, when you're speaking about people at boarding school not recognizing this, I think like that front that I put on, one of the issues is, is that it's a front for other people, but then it's also a front for yourself. And so, but when I was 13, good at rugby, fairly smart, quick witted, could make people laugh. But like the, at the same time, my mum had died when I was 10 and had never really been able to like cope with it or like really have much talking done about it. My dad married someone who was, you know, uh, no, no, not my family don't really listen to this. Uh, it, it didn't work out, didn't really work out well. We'll put it that way. And so, but what you like, the coping mechanism is, just like, right, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be chatty. I'm going to make people laugh. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to just like go and sort of create a sort of something where, you know, you, you're not even really recognizing that. And the issue, the issue is, is that then you're not recognizing it and you just say, oh, go, I keep on doing these things, uh, but I can't work out why, because well, one thing, which is for sure, I don't get anxious. I don't get scared. I'm totally fine. I can do anything. Absolutely. And, and mm. then it's just like, oh no, that's, and, and then the other part, because we've got this culture where we don't really like, it's meant to be doing things, meant to be very individualistic. And like, there's still, I was like, oh no, do I now have to say like, I'm traumatized as well? Mm. Um, getting the ADHD and the anxiety was not bad enough. Yeah. And I was like adding more to this sort of uh, list. And uh, 
this this conversation is so great and we're uh we've only just like really got into two ideas from your awesome book uh but there were uh, a couple of other things which i really liked and so maybe we'll go with uh this idea of criticism culture as because what's what again what's really great is in your work it is really situated in the structures that we're operating in that it is you know it it's like the not the, the us help, I don't know, the collective help section, the, and it goes and sort of puts words to different things. And, I'm, and that idea of the fact that we live in a criticism culture, I think is a really interesting sort of lens uh, into ourselves. Uh, and so it'd be great to go and uh, sort of explain that a bit and unpack it. Yeah, and again, I think this—you know—you can frame this as kind of cultural trauma that this is the culture we've ended up with, and it does a damage to us all. So again, I love this. We come back to those concentric circles often in the book, which is sort of yourself in the middle, and then your relationships, and then your community, and then wider culture. And it, that's a really useful model for thinking through all sorts of things. But criticism is one of them. So you know, wider capitalist culture is really kind of predicated on people believing they're lacking believing that they are this atomized individual and somehow they're flawed you know there's something wrong with me you know that's what most of us believe something fundamentally wrong with me is what most of us believe somewhere deep down and that capitalist consumer capitalist really preys on that it's telling us constantly oh yes keep monitoring yourself because there is something wrong with you and then you know we'll sell you a product or a therapy or, or something to to fix that bit but you know then it will be quickly another bit you know that you need you know and, and that always again we're then we've got sort of a fashion and we've got music industry and we've got tv and movies also kind of giving that impression of like this is how a life should be this is a successful life and it's so easy to be like judging yourself for, you're encouraged really to judge yourself for the ways you fall short you know and, and the philosophers have said this is a very good way of controlling people you know that Foucault the philosopher said it's like the panopticon prison where anytime you could be being watched by the guard at the center of this prison at any time so what you do is you start watching yourself and so we're all self-monitoring, self-judging, self-criticizing all the time, um, you know, saying that we don't look good enough and that we're not in a good enough relationship and we're not successful enough, we're not happy enough, and then trying to apply these technical fixes to that rather than recognizing that, again, the problem is in the system itself. So looking at it at that systemic level, but also looking at that this really personal level of like, we all have these very overdeveloped inner critics and, you know, how, again, how can we go back to our, our child development's time and, and you know, re really learn about how did that develop? How did that self, self-loathing, self-criticism um, develop? Why did that develop? Why, why were we as children encouraged to go down that road of thinking everything about us was flawed and then producing this beautiful mask that could survive in the world, but then, you know, having that sense all the time. That's where imposter syndrome comes from, of course, you know, that sense that we know we're not that, but we know that's the only way to survive is to sort of project that. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's, the sort of question of how we can un untangle this horrible criticism culture at every level at the cultural within our communities within our relationships and also within ourselves yeah and i i think that there's one part of sort of imposter syndrome and also this uh professionalism and by the way as someone who's got adhd i would really love to start like actually professionalism is oppression uh, i believe there are some people who oh though I, no, I, I mean, I sort of believe that, but it would be 
utterly impossible for me as a person to suggest that because it would uh but i'm just saying that that's my internal thing no, like, well, punctu no but punctuality is uh uh yeah but well, you're quite right this is what people in disability justice are saying is that you know we are all diverse our bodies are all diverse our, our, you know we are all neurodiverse and our society is set up for this small proportion of people who are considered normal in terms of their bodies their minds the way they operate as with gender sexuality and relationships you know this this tiny kind of proportion of people who are deemed normal society is set up for and what we need is to move towards this you know all all bodies all minds all the ways people work um you know and recognizing that it is massively diverse and people have very different needs and like how can we set things up in a way that recognizes that and uh, is accessible to all is inclusive of all yeah well maybe i should go and make the placard yeah uh, ready but... for it <laughs> i know a lot of i know a lot of neurodiverse people who'd be right behind you, you know? yeah yeah they wouldn't be there at the same time not at the same time <laughs> yeah 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 my wife was uh doing some work with I think it was the, yeah, she was working with someone who was on the ADHD all parliamentary committee. And uh, there's someone who's involved in the ADHD all parliamentary committee and someone who's involved in the autism all parliamentary committee. And they just said that the ADHD all parliamentary committee is so much fun. It's so lively. It's so creative, but just a lot less gets done. Whereas the autism one is just a bit quieter, more awkward, but just but a, lot a, gets a, done. a lot better <laughs> yeah, run. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they should really go work together except they'd find it uh some of the autistics of people would find it really awful yeah i mean but again thank god we finally got this language again the trauma language of recognizing the spectrum of trauma and how it impacts our bodies and minds and then this neurodiversity language again these spectrums of neurodiversity and how they show up for different people it's like we're getting somewhere here you know but we but you know again it's like we have to get to this point where all of that you know instead of having the normal that everything's compared against it's a model of diversity it's a model of spectrums you know because uh, i think in the the capitalist lens is there's certainly parts of that which are you know definitely true i think there's also a bit where it's just like it's also humans like it's not like it was it was like before factories uh, everyone was totally fine and we were and, <laughs> yeah, the, no, and there was and there was no fashion and there were no hierarchies and we were all like doing cuddle puddles yeah. of surrounded in our beetroot fields i mean <laughs> it's the beetroot field cuddle puddle yeah the I beetroot field that. cuddle puddle that's, that's actually got a course that you can do which oh, is, there is yeah. yeah 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 go on the retreat beats and retreats it's a really nice. uh, thank you very much uh, uh and like just as humans, we have got uh, an ability to go and judge ourselves because it's also a survival mechanism that you like in case you get kicked out of the tribe, in case you get kicked out of the pack, that it is it makes sense to appear really normal <laughs> mm. at all times. Exactly. And, and so be we have powerful. And we have that in us and then i do think this particular culture we're in kind of exacerbates that you know it's like we have in us to sort of divide into binaries and to kind of categorize the world but our current culture really encourages that polarization and so the social media i i think you know that's we've got to a point where almost so much of that in this particular kind of neoliberal capitalist context is is really like taken to the max isn't it um and we see yeah we see the impact of that yeah and so as predicted uh, i didn't get to half of the things that we wanted to but everything we spoke about was uh, uh 
was like I loved and we did go into some deal with basically self care and trauma, which is really great. And then we got onto uh, a little bit of uh, criticism culture, but you're, I was really thinking about like going and getting a workbook and I'd gone and downloaded a load of different worksheets and, uh, yeah, I'm, why, why use the worksheets and print them out and put them in a slightly crappy binder when, uh, your brilliant book is here. So, uh, thanks so much Thank for, you. uh, coming on this podcast. You, I, I Really like you. You're great. We should stay Thank in you. touch. It's been I like really you. Fun. You're also great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other guests who listens to other podcasts, and I didn't say that at the end, uh, I almost certainly like you as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. What a cool conversation. Did you like it? Do you have any thoughts and feelings about it? Get in touch uh, on the Twitter at Sanderson Jones or on the Facebook group, The Lifefulness Project. And yeah, we'd love to hear you, what you've got to say about it. What went and rung your bell. How cool is Meg John Barker? I think they are awesome. And it was really fun conversation but also got into these areas of looking at trauma, looking at pain, looking at self-care, like really from a society-wide point of view, it is totally right that prominence and preeminence should be given to historically marginalised communities in all of these conversations. But it is also essential that that happens in a way that recognises that we're all a bit fucked, aren't we? It's really difficult being human. It's amazing. Being alive is amazing. It's hard. And so, yeah, it was wonderful. And I really can't wait to go and find out what else comes from this conversation. And, oh, the, yeah, if you go online, you should see that I am uh, made a new short film, which is going to be coming out. It's not a short film. It's just like a little YouTube uh, film. I suppose it is technically a short film, but short film makes it sound really... You know, like I'm going to enter it into film festivals. It's a bit dark. It's got a huge twist. It's probably quite sad. Uh, a real character piece. It's not. It's just starting to be little YouTube clips. And uh, yeah, I'm really proud of it. So uh, thanks so much for listening. You're amazing. I love you. Thanks so much to Meg John. Thanks to James, even though you're not co-hosting today. You're still the best. Thanks to the wonderful Mavs for doing the editing and also for Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs>